Well, good morning. It is good to have you here in the room and those of you online. Um, I got a new shirt for Christmas. You like that? <clears throat> so far, I've been told I look like Wednesday Adams, an ex escaped convict, or a referee that doesn't know how to put on his uniform. But I like it anyway, and I'm glad that you're here to enjoy it with me. Uh, hey, as Kip said, we have just started five days into our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Just want you to know um, our elders are praying for you every single day, those of you who are participating in this. If you're not participating or haven't been, we'd love to have you join us for the remainder of our time together as we unified uh, as, a, as a body to seek God. Late last fall, I had a, a, a time of meeting with uh, Pastor Scott. He's our campus pastor in Skagit. He's been on our, on our team for years and years, but in the last year and a half is our campus pastor. And he said, hey, Bob, would there be a, would there be a weekend where I could address the Skagit uh, campus specific, some vision casting and how we can impact the valley? Uh, because they normally watch the service, uh, the sermon from here. So we were looking at the schedule, it had already been uh, scheduled out, and I thought, okay, well, I don't want them to miss the beginning of a new series or the 21 days, and I thought, well, let's, let's wedge it between that before this new series that starts next week. And so this week, um, uh, Pastor Scott is preaching directly with the Skagit campus, so they're not joining us here. So I thought, well, that means that I'm going to be addressing primarily the people in the room and those watching, of course, online. And I thought, okay, here's a standalone week. What should I preach on? It's not a part of a series. It's kind of just this one opportunity. And I started thinking through different ideas. I mean, I have a, I have a sermon incubator, ideas that are waiting to be, you know, developed down the road. And I thought, well, there's some things that I could pull one of those out of the incubator and get ready for that one. Or thought about, you know, maybe a passage of scripture that doesn't fit into a series recently, but it's a passage that's powerful or an individual or a concept or I even thought about, you know, maybe after having preached here for 30 years, maybe there's one that bears repeating. Not that I would just warm up leftovers, but hopefully God's word is worth hearing again. And so I was thinking through all that, and, and finally I landed. Here's what I've decided. Today I thought, no, 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 no. Today I'm going to talk about God. <laughs> there you have it. I'm going to talk about God today. And for those of you who are raised in church, it is going to be your straightforward three-point sermon, just like the old days. Not only that, am I talking about God in, in this three-point sermon, I'm going to kind of infuse in that my beliefs about some things about God and how, over these last 30 years, my beliefs have changed. Not that they were wrong. Maybe I should say how they've grown. Because there's some things I have believed about God for a lot of years, for decades, but I look back 30 years ago, and, and while I believed these things, maybe those beliefs were a little bit shallow, a little bit naive, a little bit even sophomoric. They weren't wrong. They were just incomplete. And there's some things that have grown over the years. Now, with that being said, having studied God's word and walked with him for more than 30 years as a pastor, I will say this emphatically, the more I know about God, the more I realize how little I know about God. You would think it would be just the opposite. But the truth is, I mean, think about it like with stars. 400 years ago, uh, astronomers were convinced there were less than 1,000 stars in the universe. They thought, we've, we've, we've got the, we, we know it all. But then there was the telescope. And then there was the Hubble telescope. And then there was the James Webb telescope. And the more that we understand about our universe, we realize how little we know and how much more there is to know. It's the same with God. I think this is what Paul, the Apostle Paul was, was saying or getting at. When in, he's writing Romans, the book of Romans, this incredible this book with all this deep theology, all these truths about God. He's just laying all this stuff out. And then 
all through the first 10 chapters. And then in chapter 11, it's almost like he's struck with, as he's just pouring out these profound truths, how little he knows, and he just stops mid-sentence. You can read this in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 20, uh, 33, I believe. And he just stops and he just says, oh, 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 the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? As he's pouring out this deepest, I mean, the deepest theology we have, I think he realizes how little he actually knows. And while that's the truth, the more you know about God, the more you realize how much more there is to know. There are things that we can know and things that we can believe and things that we can hold on to, anchors for our faith and for our life. There was another time when the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy, and he wrote this line in a letter to Timothy. Actually, growing up, I knew this as a, as a song that I sang in church long before I even knew that it was a scripture verse. I grew up singing these words, and it was when I was in my 20s. I was in, I mean, like I'm a, an, well, no, I was going to say a full-grown adult. I was an adult. I was in my 20s, and I was reading through Timothy, 2 Timothy, and I saw these words, and I'm like, hey, they stole that out of the hymn book. Then I realized, no, it's probably the other way around. But he writes this to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, I know whom I have believe, Ed. That, that's how we sing. Anyone sing that song? Okay, all right. I know whom I have believe, Ed, which is kind of a funny way because I wouldn't at the end of today say, well, I have just preached Ed my sermon. But anyway, that was the hymn. I know whom I have believed and am convinced, or as we sing, persuaded that he is able. You look at this. He says, I know whom I believed and I'm persuaded. I'm convinced that maybe that's just a redundance. It's, it's a thing that happens all throughout scripture just to emphasize. Maybe it is. Or maybe it's a progression. Maybe there's some things that he had believed his whole life. I mean, remember, he had, he had been a Pharisee. He had memorized the, the Torah. I mean, he knew the Old Testament inside and out. He was a very religious person. There were things he believed, but now... There's things he's convinced about. There's things he's persuaded about. So in my life, I mean, my dad was a pastor. I was raised in church, went to Sunday school and vacation Bible school and youth groups and retreats and, and went to a Christian high school where we had a Bible class. I went to a Christian college where I studied and majored in religion, went into ministry. There are things that I have believed for years. And when I look back 30 years ago, there were things that I believed, sound doctrine, biblically accurate. I mean, it's theologically correct, believed those things. But over the last 30 years, as I've lived and experienced life in those things, the beliefs have become convictions. I always believed them, but now it's deeper. I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. You can't pry me away from these truths. Uh, let me try to illustrate it this way. If we were talking about fishing in Alaska and running marathons, I could talk to you about those things. Because with both of those, I've talked to people who have fished in Alaska and I've talked to people who have run marathons. I've read articles and books on fishing in Alaska and articles and books on running marathons. I've watched documentaries and shows on fishing in Alaska and documentaries and shows on running marathons. 
if we talked about either of those subjects, I could talk to you about the truth of those things. I could talk to you about the things I believe. But when it comes to talking about fishing in Alaska, I can only tell you what I've read, heard, or seen. I've never fished in Alaska. I believe those things. But when we talk about marathons, I can tell you what I've read, heard, and seen, but I can also tell you what I've experienced over 40 times. It's a different understanding. It's a different level. Does that make sense? So there are some things that I have believed my whole life, but now I've experienced the truth of these things, and I'm persuaded. So here's what we're going to do. Three points. Remember? Three points. I'm going to give you what I have believed for the last 30 years. That's the theological thing. We're going to use theological words. And then I'm going to talk about how over these 30 years, those have become the things I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, I'm convicted about. And as a result, the impact it has on my life today. So that's kind of the order we're going to go with those three. Ready to do it? Good. All right, here we go. The first one is a theological truth. There's nothing new, but that is, I believe God is sovereign. I believe he is sovereign. Now, we use that word sovereignty usually when we're talking about royalty, kings, queens, that kind of thing, the sovereign ones. We know that with God, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, that he is the sovereign one. He is the one that has all authority and all rule, power over all of creation and all of life. There is no other rule or authority higher. He transcends all of those things. And while he is sovereign and transcends all other authority and rule in this universe... He is also very present and very personal. He's very engaged and aware of what's going on in our lives. But he is the sovereign God. In the book of Job, we read this when Job writes, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You are sovereign, God. Whatever you want to do, you can do. No, if you have a plan, there's not anything, anyone or any power, any nation or anyone at all could change that. If you want to do that, you are sovereign on that. There's another, another scripture that talks about the sovereignty of God found in Jeremiah. And again, this is one that I sang in the, in the late 80s and 90s. Maybe you did too. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Any of you remember that? Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the No. No one's saying that. Oh, come on. There we go. Yeah, nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing, nothing, absolutely. See, there's a reason we don't sing it anymore. (laughs) But he's saying it's the sovereignty of God, that there's nothing too hard for him. And I have believed that, but over the last 30 years as a pastor, I've come to this conviction that he's in control. Yeah, yeah, he's sovereign, but... The things in this world, he's in control. And I've learned that in so many different ways. I've seen ways that God would orchestrate things or things would happen. And you can only, you can only attribute it to the hand of God because I'm not big on the coincidence thing. And there's some stuff that is like, no, there's too much of that. That can't be attributed to, to luck or coincidence or fate or happenstance. It's a sovereign God. So, so let me back you up 30 years ago. Because this is what was kind of some of the genesis of this, of going this direction today. 30 years ago, January of 1993, as a church, Cornwall Church, our pastor had just left 
Uh, Ken Long had left. He had felt a call to, to move to, to be a pastor of a church in Florida. Why he would leave Washington in January to go to, to Florida, uh, I guess it's just obedience to God's call. Uh, yeah. I was a little ticked at him, a little frustrated. But on top of that, I was pretty fearful. I was uncertain of what would happen to us as a church, what would happen to the things. He had been our pastor. He had been our shepherd. He had been our leader. He was a great preacher. He was, he, it was amazing what God was doing under his leadership. And quite frankly, for me, this is the first time I had ever experienced a pastor leaving a church. Because remember, my dad has always been my pastor. So if he ever left the church, I left with him. I had never had a pastor leave a church. Some of the old timers around here, yeah, pastors come and go all the time. It's like no big deal. I had never experienced that. I was racked with this fear and uncertainty of what's going to happen to us as a church. So they asked Bob, I was a youth pastor, would you fill in on the pulpit until we get the new guy? Which, by the way, some are still waiting uh, <laughs> for that to happen. And I said, I said, yes, 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 I, I would. But man, I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way interested or qualified to be the, the next pastor. I mean, there's some reasons for that. I had no experience as a senior pastor. And as far as preaching was concerned, I preached once a month on Sunday night because Ken made me do that. And that Sunday night crew, they were so dedicated to the Lord. I could read out of the phone book and they'd say, hallelujah, what a good word from God. I mean, so that's all the experience I on top of that, I had not been to seminary. At that point, I was not ordained. I had never done a funeral. And the two weddings that I did, I don't think they counted. <laughs> Seriously, the first wedding I ever did, the couple had eloped, didn't want their family to know. So I did a mock wedding for them. We're signing like a, the back of a, you know, it, it just. And the second wedding I did was for friends of a friend. I didn't even know these people. They lived in Canada. They had no connection at all. So I went up and did the wedding. Because I wasn't ordained and going across the border, my credentials probably didn't transfer. To this day, they may not legally be married. <laughs> and that, that's what I had going for me. On top of that, I had just gone through a divorce and maybe even worse. I had a mullet. I was not equipped or prepared to be the senior pastor at all. No experience whatsoever to do this, but I was willing to fill in. And they put together a, a pulpit committee, a group of people to, to search for the new pastor, and I began to preach. And it's interesting, as I went back in my files, these are my sermon notes from January 10th, 1993. My sermons were a lot shorter in those days. <laughs> and I looked through this. I, I keep all my sermons on file. I mean, I've got files and files of sermons for the last 30 years. This is January 10th, so it's like last week, 30 years ago. And I was preaching because we were in this time of uncertainty. I was preaching on Samuel picking the next king for Israel and how he went through all the sons of Jesse and he came to the one that was most unlikely. I had no idea what I was preaching. And then at the end, I turned the corner to talk about how Jesus picked the 12, and none of them fit the bill for the disciples. I had no idea what I was preaching. And at the end of it, in my notes, it, it talks about how, you know, and I told them, this was the condition. If I'm going to be this interim pastor, you guys have to pray and fast for me and, and for, the, for the sake of the church. I mean, really. And so at the end of in my notes, I said, you know, you're praying and fasting for me. Continue, and then I said, add five names to the list of the people you pray for every day. And this was the pulpit committee. Ray Backman, Altruth Calkins, Carly Dunn, Chuck Hartman, and Larry Watts. 
Three of them will probably be in the next service, which, by the way, Alta Ruth turns 100 next month, still serving the Lord. But we began to pray. We began to pray for these individuals as they were looking for who would, who would be the next pastor. And I remember one day, I believe it was Larry Watts and, and Chuck Hartman took me out to lunch. We went to a place called Goldie's. It was a restaurant that was up on Bakerview. We sat down for lunch, and they said, we understand you're not interested in being the senior pastor. I said, that's right. And they said, um, would you pray about it? Now, I think that maybe they were getting either desperate or some pressure from some of the youth group kids. I'm not sure what the deal was. Because of those weeks leading up to that, I'd had more people say, Bob, why don't you just be our pastor? And as those weeks leading up to it, I'd had more people say, Bob, we really don't think you ought to be our pastor. <laughs> in fact, one lady, she set up an appointment, came in, sat down in my office and said, let me tell you the reasons why I think you should not be our pastor. I agreed with her all the way down the list. I'm like, I'm with you, sister. Yeah, if you got to go to the board, I'm with you. I'm behind you. But these two guys said, would you pray about it? Now, what am I going to say? So I did. And it was interesting that, that I never heard no, but I never heard yes. And I decided, well, I'm just going to keep walking until God either slams the door or makes it abundantly clear. Because I'm not really looking for this. I'm not, not that interested. But we kept going. And interesting things started happening that God began to knit my heart to become a shepherd's heart for this church and these people. But I still wasn't sure that I wanted to be their senior pastor. And finally, they said, well, we're going to put it to a vote, a vote of the congregation. And according to our bylaws, it only needed a 75% approval. I'm like, I don't want 25% of the church hating me as their pastor. I can handle 5% or something, but whatever. And so I, I still wasn't like convinced that this was the right thing. And I prayed, and I know this is maybe a lack of faith, but I, I did the whole, you know, uh, Gideon put the fleece thing out. And I said, okay, God, here's the deal. I have to know this is of you. I don't want to do this if this, I, it's got to be so clear. So on that vote, if it's less than 95%, I'm just going to take that as a no. And it's not for my ego. It's not that I need this overwhelm. I just, I need to know, God. I need to know. And I told my mom this, and she was praying with me, and she went into this, well, what if it's 94%? I said, I don't know, Mom, just, just pray. <laughs> just pray. So in May that year, Sunday night, we're in the basement of the old church, and we're down there, and we have this, this little short business meeting. And, uh, and people voted, and then they took it off to, to tally the, the ballots, whatever. And then we went on with our service. At the end of the service, um, announcement, an announcement was made, and I keep this card with me because this was given to me. I didn't ask for this. But this was the uh, it's handwriting of Alta Ruth, by the way. And the, the tally and the tellers were, you know, uh, Dan Christen and, and Don Johnson and Gail Rasmussen. There were eight no votes. I knew who six of them were. <laughs> and there were 173 yes votes. And at the, at the bottom, and I it didn't, it's a 95.6% approval. The reason I still have this card, because that was God saying, yes, I want you to be this pastor of this church. God is in control. God is sovereign. I would have never picked it. I would have never planned it that way. In Isaiah 46, it says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. 
I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That's the sovereignty of our God. And here's the truth. He sees things that I don't see. He knows things that I could never know. And he controls things that I can't control. But he's sovereign and he's in control. And where that lands me today is that I have a greater confidence. Not a greater confidence in me, but a greater confidence in my sovereign God. I have a greater confidence because I've seen his sovereign hand. I've seen his control. I've seen him work ways that only he could do. So when I look back and see those things, I can go forward with confidence knowing that God is sovereign. We sang this morning, why would he fail now? He won't. He's got a track record. He's a sovereign God. Second point is this. Second point that I believe for the last 30 years is that God is immutable. And that's a, a fancy theological church word. Immutable simply means not changing, unchanging, unchangeable. You say, well, why didn't you say so? I just did. Okay. In the Old Testament, the last of the prophets, the minor prophet, Malachi, or if you're from Italy, Malachi. But Malachi in his last prophecy, by the way, do you remember Happy Days with the Malachi brothers and the Demolition Derby? Anyone remember that at all? Let the pigeons loose. But they'd always say, okay, no, no, All right. So in Malachi, not Malachi, in Malachi, we read this about the immutable nature of God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. And then it goes silent for 400 years. There's no more prophets. There's this promise of a Messiah someday, but for 400 years, people are probably thinking, what do you mean you don't change? We think you just fell asleep or died. Nothing, we haven't heard anything. 450 to 500 years later, the writer of Hebrews writes these words. Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. We change, but God doesn't. He's eternal. He's immutable. We change all the time. We grow, we learn, we develop, we age, we diminish, we die. We're, we're always in a state of change. I mean, we get stronger, but we get smarter. We start sagging, wrinkling, and graying, and we nip and tuck and die and do all the stuff to try to stay forever young. But the truth is we're all changing. I'm changing. I'm less than six months away from being 60. I'm changing. Not as young as I used to be. My daughter, Alyssa, lives in Austin, Texas. She and I are running an Austin Marathon next month, and, and we've been kind of tracking each other's, uh, you know, workouts, our runs, how far, how fast, the pace. She's 30. She is actually in the prime marathon years right now. She's just entering into what I would consider the prime marathon running years. And, um, and she's working out with some people that are going to run this marathon as well. One was a collegiate uh, runner, and the other one, is, he's trying to get a Boston qualifying time. So she's sending me these times that they're running, and it's like, I mean, they're just crushing it. Their pace and their distances. And so I, uh, every Friday morning, we do a Marco Polo thing after our run. And I just, I'd seen these times, and I just did a Marco Polo to her. I said, hey, Alyssa, just, hey, you guys are killing it down there. I just want you to know, in February, when we run this race, um, I want you to run your race. 
And if you want to run with your friends, great. I'm just telling you, um, I don't think I can do that pace what you guys are doing. Um, In the years past, I could have, but I'm not as fast as I used to be. And you know, as I'm getting closer to 60, quite frankly, my pace is slowing down. And so, so, man, I am so excited for you, and I just want you to do your best. You just do that. So I left that. If you're not sure how, if you're not aware of how Marco Polo works, it's not a conversation in real time. It's like you send this video, and then they send a video back. So I sent this off. So she didn't have a time to, to uh, respond back. Well, that afternoon, she called Doreen, and she said, Mom, Dad, Dad sent me this Marco Polo that it's made me really, really sad. I mean, because, you know, from child, I mean, she's always, I've always been the runner dad or whatever. It just made me really, really sad. He's talking about how he's getting older and slower and all this stuff. So I called her and said, listen, no, no, come on. Don't, it's not about, it's not, a, oh, you know, poor his dead dad or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's just, here's the reality. I'm not as fast as I used to be. And, and I am super excited about how you're training and, and where you're going and all that. She came home for 10 days over the holidays. And early on, I was in my office at home, and I was reading a book. She just popped her head in and said, hey, Dad, what are you doing? I said, reading. She said, what are you reading? I said, well, it's, it's this book about the second half of life. <laughs> and she just walked out of the office, didn't say anything. <laughs> so on Christmas morning, one of the things Doreen said, well, what do you want for Christmas? I said, there's a list of books that I'd like a few of these books that I'm really excited to read this year. And so they all came there in the Amazon box. So... Um, I knew what they were, so I wrapped them myself, actually. And, um, and so I opened up this package, and, and here are these, these four books. I'm like, oh, acting surprised. Oh, oh, I've been wanting this book. And Alyssa goes, those aren't end-of-life books, are they? I said, no, they're not end-of-life books. And that became, for the rest of their time here, kind of this joke that dad's in the end-of-life season, all of these things. And it's just the reality I'm changing. I'm getting older. I'm not as fast as I used to be. She and I went snowboarding. She cannot keep up with me snowboarding yet. <laughs> we got down to the end of the run. I'm waiting at the chair, and she comes down, and she goes, that was a pretty fast run for a guy his end of life. <laughs> I'm changing. God doesn't change. He's always the same. He's the eternal one, but he's not getting older. He's the ancients of days, but he's not faded in his ways. Scripture says this about God's unchanging nature and his strength in Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Anything he's ever done, he can do today. The same power of creation that he exerted, he can exert today. The same power of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, he can exert today. He has not changed. His power, his ability, his capacity is unchanging. But it's not just in his power. He's unchanging in his truth, regardless of what our culture says. He's unchanging in his character and his characteristics and his nature. And he's always the same. And over the years, as I've believed this immutable God is unchanging, what I've become convinced of is that he is faithful. You can count on him. When it comes to God, you can rest assured 
Because the way he has been is the way he will be. Dr. Seuss wrote a book called Horton Hatches an Egg. It's, It's a silly little book about this elephant that sits on an egg to hatch it. But there's this repeated refrain throughout the book. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant faithful, 100%. Just faithful elephant. The the Marines, simplify, always faithful. Aren't you glad that we have a God who is faithful 100%? Aren't you glad we don't have a God who's moody? What would it be like to say, oh no, it's that time of the month for God. What would you be like if every morning we say, I wonder what side of the cosmos God woke up on today because I'm not really sure what we're going to be dealing with. I'm so grateful that God doesn't treat us the way we treat him. Oh, fine. You want to be that way? Let me tell you. If it, it says in 2 Timothy, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Right. We sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. A hundred years ago this this year, it was 1923, uh, a man named uh, Thomas Chisholm wrote a poem. It's a poem about this this whole unchanging nature of God. And he sent it to a friend, and his friend... Um, put it to to some music, and it became one of the great hymns of the church for the last 100 years. Some of you know it well. Great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. Listen to this. As thou hast been, thou forever shalt be. It's based on these words out of Lamentation that Jeremiah wrote, Lamentations 3. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I keep talking about these last 30 years. And I went on my computer to the date calculator From the day Ken, our former pastor, left, when I was so uncertain of what would happen, from that day until today, there have been 10,975 days. And you know what? God's mercies have been new every single day. And because he is unchanging, because he is faithful, you know what that does for me? Is that I have a deeper trust Because I can rest assured. I don't have to wonder. I've seen his faithfulness over and over again. And I can trust on a deeper level. All right, third point. It's what I believe, have believed, is that God is beneficent. Now, that's a word we don't use a whole lot. It's a theological word. I don't use that word a whole lot. Benevolent we use, and God is that too. But this is different. He is beneficent. And for some of you, this is a word you've never heard before. Let me tell you uh, what John Hamilton wrote about the beneficence of God. He said, its origin is in past eternity. It extends throughout eternity to come. Think of a being, all perfect, all powerful, all wise, 
employing his mighty energies to perpetually doing good. What an immense amount of happiness he must be continually diffusing. He just continues to do good. The beneficence of God is like this umbrella that would encompass things like his kindness and his mercies that are new every day and his grace that is sufficient and his generosity toward us and his love for us and all these things. It's the, the, the God who, who's far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. You know, there's that verse that says, no eye has seen, no ears heard, no mind can conceive of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And sometimes we think about, okay, well, that's kind of like the, I know the plans I have for you, and that's true. Or, or maybe it's, it's the truth of God, and that's true. Or, or maybe it's that someday, you know, in the next reality, in eternity, and that's true. Think about this. What if it's God himself? That no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind could conceive. That God is more wondrous, more glorious, more beautiful than our mind has the capacity to even grasp. And so much more. And this is what I'm convinced, convinced of, persuaded, convicted of, that he is good. He is good. God is beneficent. He is a good God. There's a phrase that I, I mean, I don't know how, I, I just say it all the time. God, you've been so good to me. God, you're so good. In so many ways, he's blessed me. Uh, one of the blessings is being the pastor of this church for the last 30 years. I mean, you put up with me. You pray for me, you support me, you're patient with me, the grace you extend to me, the generosity, it's an incredible blessing. And that's just one. There's so many on so many fronts. And what does the psalmist say? Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, blesses the man who takes refuge in him. Listen, that doesn't mean that life is always good. Sometimes we taste the bitterness of life. But I'm convinced that even in those times, God is still good. Because some of you have come to this conclusion, well, Bob just lives the blessed life, and it's just been so great for him, and he's got all... No, no, no. In these last 30 years, there's been four or five seasons that have been very, very difficult. I've already shared, and I'll spare you the details. I shared about the difficulties of 1991-92. I had just gone through a divorce and then Ken left. I mean, that was a dark season for me. That was a rough, rough chapter. 2002, we'd been in this building project to get into this building and all the tension and stress with that and the raising the millions of dollars and all that. And then in the midst of all that, just before we moved in here, two of my very good friends and dear loved pastors of our church resigned at the same time as we were making. That was a hard, hard deal for me. 2007, 2008, my dad had died. We're dealing with some stuff in our family and, and uh, some stresses and, again, some things on our staff with some, some people leaving. It was just a hard... A couple of years ago, during COVID, all that. I mean, those seasons were not easy. 
and the amount of thousands of dollars that counselors got during those seasons. It was tough. But God is good. You know this verse out of Romans 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Habakkuk, this minor prophet. Habakkuk talks about how, how tough things are in his world, in his life, economically especially. Like he planted these crops, they failed. So he doesn't have any of that. And all the cattle, they're, they're dead. They're gone. They're not even in the stalls. And he just goes on and on, lists off these things. And it's like this gloom, despair, and agony on me. It's just this horrible situation that's going on in his world. And then he writes these word, words in Habakkuk 3. Yet, yet, here's the reality. Here's all that's going on. Yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. I'm not rejoicing in these circumstances. I'm not joyful about the condition of my life or my economy or my relationships or whatever it is, but I will rejoice in the Lord. He is sovereign. He is good. He doesn't change. And we hold on to that. You know, I was thinking about this whole thing of the goodness of God. And, uh, and there's a story that I absolutely love. I, I, I first read this story 25 years ago. It's a true story. And this is the part of, of the sermon that's kind of a bit of a rerun. Because over the last 25 years, I've probably read this story three or four times. And I quite frankly don't care what you think. I'm going to read it again today. <laughs> because I need to be reminded. And it puts things in perspective. And it shows me this picture. It's a true story. It's a story written by a man named Tom Schmidt. It's the story of Mabel. He writes this. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's a large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but never wanted to go there. And I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and the white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old, 
and that she had been there bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She less, looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and I said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. And I said, of, of course, and I, I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She'd grown up on a small farm that she managed only with her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches. And then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. And I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. And for Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I'd go to her with a pen and a paper to write down the things that she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all the things I had to think about. And then the question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not able to know if it's night or day? So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? She said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I 
think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks think I'm kind of old-fashioned. But I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Our God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. So where does that land me now? I have a sweeter worship. My worship is sweeter. 30 years ago, I had no problem worshiping with reverence and awe and respect and honor Yahweh, the great creator of the world. And that's all true. But you go through life. And you experience the grace of God in his presence in the valleys in his goodness to see you through there's still the reverence and the respect but there's a deeper affection there's an intense communing there's a love and devotion that's sweeter still Psalmist writes in Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. I referenced one of these dark seasons was just a couple years ago, two years ago, in fact. COVID was tough on all of us. I get that. I love people. I love this church. And to not have the interaction on a weekly basis was tough. The isolation that our staff was working from home, it was, that was difficult just for me. The coming in here on Friday afternoons and preaching to a camera in an empty room was very, very difficult. We had made decisions and people had left our church and let us know that was difficult. I get it, I understand, but it was still difficult. They would say, don't take this personally, but it's hard not to. We've made decisions not everyone agreed with, and people let me know about that, and the critical emails and calls and texts that I got, it wasn't easy. In addition to that, there was some really tough stuff going on in our family, and for me personally, as I said, spent a lot of time in a therapist's office during those days. And one night, I drove out to Birch Bay by myself, and I was about as low as I could get during that season. And I had a a worship playlist that I'd put together, had it playing in my car. And it came to the song, The Goodness of God. And I just hit repeat on that. And that night at Birch Bay, I played that song over and over and over. And I cried and I prayed 
God is good. So I asked if, if we could close with that song this weekend. And I asked if I could lead this song. Some of you don't know this, but 30 years ago, I used to lead worship around here. <laughs> good thing things change. <laughs>